R.C. Sproul, in his great book, Chosen by God, he tells the story of the time that his seminary professor, a man by the name of John Gerstner, was giving a class lecture on the subject of predestination. And while giving this lecture, one of the students raised his hands in order to ask a question. The student wanted to know if it was safe to assume that Dr. Gerstner was a Calvinist, to which the professor replied yes, and then he just resumed his lecture. But a few moments later, as if a light bulb had gone off in his head, Dr. Gerstner stopped in just mid-sentence and asked the student, what is your definition of a Calvinist? And here's what the student said. He said, a Calvinist is someone who believes that God forces some people to choose Christ and prevents other people from choosing Christ. To which Dr. Gerstner then replied, well, if that's what a Calvinist is, then you can be sure that I am not a Calvinist. Now, folks, Dr. John Gerstner was known as a very strong Calvinist. In fact, he taught R.C. Sproul the truths of the doctrines of grace, but he rejected this young man's definition of a Calvinist as someone who believes that God forces some people against their wills into his kingdom. And Dr. Gerstner was absolutely right. See, Calvinism does not teach that God takes people kicking and screaming and coerces them against their wills to come to Christ. Nor is a Calvinist someone who believes that God excludes people from coming to Christ even though they really want to come. He says, no, that's not Calvinism. That is a caricature of Calvinism. That's a distortion of what Calvinists teach and what they believe. And the only way to really clear up this misrepresentation of Calvinism is to know the truth, to know the truth of what Calvinism teaches, what Calvinism believes, and more importantly, what Scripture teaches about how God brings someone into his kingdom as he brings them to faith in his son. And so today, this being the first Sunday of the month, when we as a church gather as a family, God's family, brothers and sisters in Christ, to observe the Lord's Supper. And because of that, we are continuing our study, which we started a number of months ago, on the various points of that system known as Calvinism. You can also call it the doctrines of grace, but we're choosing to call it Calvinism because we're following a acrostic called TULIP. And the reason for this study, which as I said, started a number of months ago, is because the more we become aware of God's sovereign role in our salvation, the more we'll praise him, the more we'll adore him, the more we will be in awe of him because we'll realize that all of salvation is of God. And so we'll praise, we'll adore him, we'll understand the cross, we'll be more in awe of the Lord for the cross of Christ, which is the very basis of our salvation, and it is the focus of the Lord's Supper. Now this morning, we're going to be looking at the fourth point of Calvinism, which as I said, we are following the well-known acrostic tulip starts with the letter L, the fourth point. It's known as irresistible grace. Now let me remind you what we've seen so far over the last few months in our study of Calvinism and how this fourth point fits into this theological system. As you'll recall, the first point of Calvinism begins, and it must begin here, by declaring that all men are totally depraved, which means that sin has polluted every part of us. Sin has corrupted us. Sin has infected us, our minds, our wills, our emotions. And it's left us not only slaves to sin, 
but dead in our sins and transgressions so that an unconverted person is completely unresponsive to God when they hear the gospel preached. We love our sin. We don't want to repent of our sin. We don't want to turn to Christ for salvation. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that all are naturally born hostile towards God. We want nothing to do with God until he changes our hearts. So it's incorrect when someone says, I've always loved God. Nobody's always loved God. We hated God. And so this is the state of all unconverted individuals, spiritually dead, unwilling then to believe and to follow Christ. And if God had left us in that state, if he hadn't moved in our lives, if he just left us there so that upon death we went to hell, he would be perfectly just. He owes us nothing especially salvation. But out of his heart, his heart of mercy and kindness and grace and compassion, God did something to deliver us from this hopeless situation. Long before we were ever born, in eternity past, the Bible says that God sovereignly chose some to be saved. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 and 5, and I could have chosen many, many verses in the Bible about this, but Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 just get right to the point. Paul says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. This truth is known as unconditional election, and it is the second point of Calvinism following total depravity. So you have the T, then you have the U. However, the fact that God has chosen some to be saved, I want you to understand that in and of itself doesn't save anybody. Election doesn't save anybody. It simply guarantees that someday those who have been chosen to salvation, someday they will experience salvation. But election in and of itself doesn't save a person. It just guarantees they will be saved. But you see, there still has to be, there still had to be an actual payment for the elect sin because God is holy and just and therefore his justice had to be satisfied by sin being judged, punished, paid for. And that's what Jesus did. And that's why Jesus, the divine second person of the Trinity, came into this world. He came in order to secure the salvation of the elect by dying on the cross and being punished in their place. That doctrine in which Christ in his death paid and atoned for the sins of the elect, that's known in Calvinism as limited atonement because it limits the design, the purpose, the intent of the atonement to those who are chosen to salvation. And that is the third point of Calvinism. But now, in our quest to understand exactly how those who are elected to salvation and for whom Christ died, how they actually come to faith, how they experience salvation, come to faith in him so that they experience the wonders of salvation, how that happens, we do face a bit of a dilemma. You see, if individuals must believe on Jesus to be saved, and they must because the scripture says, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is totally by faith. But if unbelievers are unable to believe in Christ because they are spiritually dead and therefore unresponsive to the gospel, 
then how can any person who has been divinely chosen for salvation ever come to faith in Jesus? How is this even possible? Well, the answer is found in this fourth point of Calvinism, the doctrine that we're looking at today. And by the way, we will look at it next month when we observe the Lord's Supper. It's called irresistible grace. Now, the approach that I want to take this morning with this doctrine is what I've done throughout this series. That, that is, I'm going to ask some questions and then supply you with the answers. But I want you to know at the beginning of our study that what you're about to discover today and then next month when we observe the Lord's Supper, it's not only going to stretch your thinking, it's not only going to enlighten you as to how merciful God is, but you're going to learn some very practical and wonderful truths that will affect the way you think about witnessing, about evangelism, how you witness to others. You see, the doctrine of irresistible grace is a teaching that deals with the very issue of evangelism and God's power to overcome man's resistance to the gospel. This is the teaching that will help you to have confidence in God to save that relative or that friend of yours who's just so hostile towards Christ. This is the doctrine that will evoke praise and adoration from you towards God when you see what he actually did, all that he did in your life to bring you to himself. This is the teaching that will enable you to see that you must never rely upon human gimmicks or clever arguments or your persuasiveness to try to lead people to Christ, but should trust the power of God to accomplish what only he can accomplish by working in the hearts of stubborn, stiff-necked sinners. So I want you to know as we delve into the subject that the doctrine of irresistible grace, it's not some dry, irrelevant, theological, dusty study. The doctrine of irresistible grace is just filled with some of the most important and practical truths related to the Christian life. So without further delay, let's get into our study of irresistible grace. And we begin by asking really the most basic of all questions that we could ask about irresistible grace, and that is, what do Calvinists mean when they speak of the doctrine of irresistible grace? What do they mean by it? Well, the term irresistible grace, I recognize it might be new to some of you because it is not a term found in the Bible. You will not find these words in the Bible, irresistible grace. But like so many other biblical doctrines, though it may not be mentioned by name in the scriptures, it's certainly found in many places. It's truth is found in many places in the Bible, very similar to the doctrine of the Trinity. There's no word in the Bible that says Trinity. You'll not find that word, but you'll find that truth all over the pages of both Old and New Testament. Now, very simply put, what Calvinists mean when they speak of irresistible grace is that the Holy Spirit always, always succeeds in bringing to salvation those whom the Father has chosen for whom the Son has died. In other words, no one who has been elected, no one who's been chosen to salvation can or will successfully resist and refuse to come to Christ when the Holy Spirit calls them to salvation. Here's the way Bible teacher and author Steve Lawson in his book, The Gospel Focus of Charles Spurgeon, how he explains what is meant by these two words, irresistible grace, is he tells us that Spurgeon believed in this doctrine. Steve Lawson writes, Spurgeon affirmed the doctrine of irresistible grace. This is the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit who convicts, calls, draws, and regenerates elect sinners. This work unfailingly 
results in the faith of all those chosen, all whom the Father chose in eternity past and all those for whom the Son died are those whom the Spirit brings to faith in Jesus Christ. None whom the Father elected and for whom Christ died fail to believe. The Holy Spirit grants repentance and faith to these elect sinners and ensures their conversion. Now, the term itself, irresistible grace, I think it does need some explanation, as it can be if you just take these words It can be a bit misleading unless you understand more about it because it can give the impression that God's calling of people to faith in Christ is never resisted. That's just not true. It's just not true. People, even the elect, can and do resist God's call to come to Christ at least up to a certain point. And in the case of those who are not chosen, they always resist and they will continue to resist God's call to salvation whenever they hear the gospel preached to them, whenever someone witnesses to them. And even those who eventually do come to faith in Christ, the elect, rarely respond to Christ the first time they hear the gospel, which means then that for a time, as I just mentioned, even they, the elect, resist his call in their lives. This was certainly the case in my own life. From the time that I first heard about Jesus... When a friend started witnessing to me during my freshman year at the University of South Florida until I finally came to believe in him as the Messiah, as my Lord, as my Savior, that was a six-month period of time. So for about six months, I was definitely and intentionally resisting Christ because I continued in my unbelief and I did not trust him as my Savior in spite of the fact that I now had some understanding, in fact, a lot of understanding about who he was. But that resistance, it did not continue in my life, and that's the point, nor does it continue indefinitely in the life of any person who has been divinely elected to salvation. You see, what the doctrine of irresistible grace teaches is that there comes a point in the life of someone who is elected to salvation when the Holy Spirit, note this, internally, and that's the key word, internally calls them to come to Christ with such an effective call that cannot and will not be resisted. That is to say that when God calls one of his own to Christ, one of his sheep, one of his elect, through the proclamation of the gospel, as we share the gospel, that person will come and will not be successful in resisting that call. Let me illustrate this truth from the book of Acts as we look at what Stephen, that great man of God, Stephen, the man who would become the first Christian martyr in history, what he said in Acts chapter 7, verse 51. Stephen said this, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Now what we read here is part of Stephen's rather lengthy message to some unbelieving Jewish religious leaders. What he's done prior to this is he's given them a Bible lesson on God's dealings with Israel in Old Testament times, showing that throughout all the history of Israel, pretty much all the history of Israel, there's been resistance on the part of the Jewish people to the Lord. They weren't just a little naughty. They were disobedient. They were resistant 
And so having just told them that, now he makes an accusation. He charges these men, these leaders, religious leaders in Israel, of always resisting the Holy Spirit just as their fathers, their ancestors did. Now, with most of these men, their resistance of the truth of the gospel, the word of God, would continue until they died. Though they heard the gospel message about Jesus, they would resist it, they would not accept it, and tragically today, 2,000 years later, they're still in hell and they'll be in hell forever and ever. However, one of these men who heard Stephen speak that day, and he went along with his religious colleagues in resisting the truth about Jesus and salvation, he was a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus. Perhaps you've heard of him. In fact, Saul was so resistant to the gospel that not only was he part of this mob that killed Stephen, but he was so hostile towards Christ that he went on a rampage trying to kill and imprison other Jewish people who believed in Christ as the Messiah. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, right after telling us about Stephen's death, we read this. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Folks, he put them in prison with the intent that they would be killed, that they would be executed. Now, based on these words, I think that we can safely say that Saul's reaction to the truth about Jesus was not just resistance, but big time, extreme resistance. However, Saul was one of God's elect. He was chosen before the foundation of the world, though no one certainly at that time knew it. No one knew it except God himself. And his resistance was allowed by God but only up to a certain point, and then God intervened in Saul's life, and he brought Saul's resistance to an abrupt end, as we read in Acts chapter 9, for the sake of time constraints, I won't read it, but you know the story about how Saul was converted on the road to Damascus, a bright light shining, and the Lord revealed himself to Saul, why are you persecuting me, who are you, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, and the story goes on to tell us that Saul stopped his resistance. He came to faith in Christ. As a believer, he was soon baptized. And shortly after that, he's witnessing to people, starting in Damascus, and then wherever he went, he witnesses about Christ. And with his conversion, Saul, who would become the great apostle Paul, he ends his resistance to Christ by responding in obedience to this divine call to salvation. So what happened here? Why was Paul so opposed to the gospel one minute and not the next? What happened to him? What happened to him that he no longer continued in his stubborn, stiff-necked resistance of the truth about Jesus like all of his other religious colleagues? Something happened. Well, the answer to the question is found in the doctrine known as irresistible grace. So let me explain why some people continue to resist God's call to salvation and others don't. Even though all, both the elect and non-elect, are totally depraved, all are totally dead souls, and all are totally incapable in and of themselves of responding properly and positively to the call to salvation. See, the Bible teaches, note this, that there are two kinds of calls. 
Two kinds of calls that go out to people, inviting them and summoning them to repent of their sin and believe on the Lord. The first call is commonly known as the general call. Once again, you'll not find those words in the Bible, but the truth is there. It's known as a general call, and it's known by this for good reason. The general call is that universal call to salvation that is extended to every person who hears the gospel. This is the outward call that comes when one hears the gospel message. It is the call that invites all and everyone without any distinction as to whether a person is elect or non-elect to come to faith in Christ. In other words, every time the gospel is proclaimed, either from a church pulpit, a book, a sermon on the internet or YouTube, a radio program, a tract, or by a Christian, someone like you, someone like me, just sharing the gospel one-on-one with someone, this is God's general call to those who hear it to come to faith in Christ and receive salvation. Jesus himself, he gave this general call when in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, he said, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Now this was a call A call to salvation that went out to every Jewish person within earshot of Christ's voice that day. A general call. Again, in John 7, verse 37, Jesus issued a similar general call of salvation to all who heard him in the city of Jerusalem. When he cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Folks, that's a general call of anyone. Anyone who hears this, if you're thirsty in your soul, Come to me, drink of me, and receive salvation. The Apostle Paul gave the same general call to salvation when he told the philosophers of Athens, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. This is God's declaration to people everywhere. Repent and believe on Christ. It's God's general call. It is the great commission in action. It is you and I witnessing to friends and loved ones, to people everywhere, urging them to believe on Christ. Same thing could be said of Peter's ministry, his sermon on the day of Pentecost when he told all the people, thousands of Jewish people listening to his sermon that day, that if they repented, they would be forgiven of all of their sins. This was a general call that went out to thousands of people on the day of Pentecost. And folks, every time you tell someone the gospel, and you bear witness to Christ, God is using you to issue that same general call to salvation. But listen very closely. Because here's what happens every time this general call, and only this general call goes out. No one, no one responds to it by being saved. I hope you heard that. Nobody responds to it. No one ever responds to this general call by placing their faith in Christ Even those who claim to understand the gospel, even to agree with it mentally, they never repent of their sin. They never turn to Christ for salvation after hearing this general call. And there's a very good reason for that. It's because all unsaved individuals, by their nature, we keep coming back to this, they are totally depraved. They are spiritually dead. So they are completely unable to respond to this general call to be saved. That is to say, they don't have the moral capacity. They don't have the spiritual ability to turn away from their sin and turn to Christ for salvation. In other words, being spiritually dead, they don't want to repent. They aren't interested in repenting. 
And they don't even have the capability of repenting. The prophet Isaiah spoke of this very condition when he said in Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray and we've turned everyone to his own way. Everyone. And there's no way that any unconverted individual is going to stop his straying and stop turning to his own way. Why? Because he loves his way of sin, his way of life. And he's going to continue in his way of life, a way of sin, no matter how compelling or persuasive the person sharing the gospel with him might be. Listen, even if an individual, even if someone were to hear the very voice of Jesus Christ himself invite them to salvation, they would still resist this call. How do I know that? I know that because that's exactly what happened during our Lord's ministry in this world. Luke chapter 14 Listen to this. This is a parable Jesus gave. Luke 14, verses 16 through 24. But he said to him, a man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have married a wife and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, go at it once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, master, what you commanded has been done and still there's room. And the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste of my dinner. Now in these verses, as you can see, Jesus gave a parable, a story about a a man who prepared a big dinner, a big dinner banquet, and he invited many guests to join him at this banquet. But one by one, these guests began to give excuses as to why they could not, why they would not come to the banquet. And the excuses they gave were frankly pathetically lame and even silly. They're ridiculous. One man said he had purchased a piece of land and he had to look it over. Well, he had already purchased the land, so obviously he had already looked it over. I don't have to look it over again. And even if he hadn't, the land would still be there after the banquet, so what's the big deal? But he refused to come to the dinner, so he asked to be excused. He didn't want to come to the dinner, and he gave an excuse. Next man said that he had purchased some animals, some oxen, and he had to try them out. Now, folks, once again, this was a lame excuse because no one, no one purchased oxen without first trying them out. All farmers know better than to purchase working animals without first seeing if they can perform. That's nonsense. But that's what this man said. That was his reason for not coming to the dinner. It was just a silly, non-legitimate excuse. And the third man asked to be excused from the banquet because he had recently married a wife. Now, In that day, under the Mosaic law, men were excused from military service if they had recently gotten married, but this wasn't military service. This was a social gathering, and so there was no valid reason for why this man and his wife couldn't attend. So like all the others, he just didn't want to attend this man's dinner banquet, and so he came up with this ridiculous excuse. Now, 
This may have been, and it certainly was, a parable that Jesus told, but it wasn't totally fictitious, as James Montgomery Boyce points out. He writes, Jesus was not making the story up out of thin air. This was the way the people of his day actually responded to his call. They would not receive the invitation. They rejected it, preferring to go their own way. And folks, the reason they preferred to go their own way when Jesus called them to salvation, it's the very same reason that people that you speak to about Christ prefer to go their own way. It's because people love their sin. They are enslaved to their sin as those who are spiritually dead. We keep coming back to this because this is critical. They have absolutely no interest, no ability, no desire to come to Christ for salvation. This is why the Lord Jesus in John 3, 19 and 20 said these words. He said, this is the judgment that light has come into the world. He is the light, he's saying. And men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And this is why everyone, without exception, rejects this general call to salvation. But as I mentioned, there are two kinds of calls that go out to people. Two kinds of calls, inviting them and summoning them to repent and believe on Christ. The first is that general call. That goes out to everyone. It's always resisted. But the second type of call is known as the special call or the specific call or the effective call. And unlike the first call, which is an outward general call that goes out to all, this, the specific call, is an inward calling from the Holy Spirit that goes out only to the elect, and it is this call that cannot be resisted. It will not be resisted. That is to say that this special call is a successful call to salvation, because when this call goes out, it goes out to someone who has been divinely chosen to salvation, and it is always successful, it is always effective, in that the elect always responds by coming to faith in Christ. This special call never fails to result in someone's conversion. This is how one Bible teacher explained the special call. He said this, he said, the Holy Spirit, in order to bring God's elect to salvation, extends to them a special inward call, note this, in addition to the outward call contained in the gospel message. That is to say, while you're sharing the gospel with someone, God, unbeknownst to you, may be giving that special call in someone's heart. You don't really know it. You're just sharing the gospel, and rightfully so. He said, though through this special call, the Holy Spirit performs a work of grace within the sinner, which inevitably brings him to faith in Christ. The inward change wrought in the elect sinner enables him to understand and believe spiritual truth. In the inward realm, he's given the seeing eye and the hearing ear. In other words, there's going to be times, as I said, when you're, when you're witnessing to someone, when unbeknownst to you, God will use your witness to give his special call to someone to be saved and therefore they will be saved. You don't know when you're doing this. You don't know if God is using this. You're just trying to be faithful and sharing the gospel. See, we just never know when God is going to use us as we proclaim Christ to give that special inward call to an individual that will not be resisted. So let me give you an illustration of what this special call is like and then tell you how it works. 
When God brings a dead, depraved sinner to himself, note this, he makes him spiritually alive. He's dead, then he becomes spiritually alive. That is to say that he gives him life. He gives him a new nature. He gives him spiritual life, eternal life, a new heart. If the Lord didn't do this, then we would all remain spiritually dead. You'd be spiritually dead today. This is the last place you'd want to be if the Lord hadn't opened your heart. The Bible speaks of an incident that illustrates in the physical realm what this special call looks like in the spiritual realm. The incident I'm referring to is the very well-known story of Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. In John chapter 11, we read that Jesus arrived in the town of Bethany. It was not far from Jerusalem. After his friend Lazarus had been dead four days, By this time, his body had been placed in a cave and it was already starting to decompose and stink. In the wonderful words of the King James language, he stinketh. And that's exactly what it was. But notice what Jesus did, verses 43 and 44. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So Jesus, note this, he called this dead, stinking man to life, and he came to life. He came forth. He did, and and folks, that's precisely what the Holy Spirit does when he calls spiritually dead, sinfully stinking people like us to life in Christ. We don't hear anything verbally. It is the mysterious work of the Spirit of God drawing us to Christ. Now, how does all this work? If all men, including the elect, if if all of us are dead in our sins, then how can anyone respond to the Holy Spirit's call to come to Christ? So listen very carefully. It begins when the Spirit of God, at the time of His sovereign choosing supernaturally creates within a sinner a new heart and a new nature. It is his work, nothing we do. It is his work. The Bible refers to this as regeneration, commonly known as the new birth, being born again. 1 Peter 1.23 says this, for you have been born again. Peter could have used the term, you've been regenerated. It is a synonym. You have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. He means when someone proclaims the gospel, God may use that to call that person irresistibly to Christ. See, the experience of everyone who becomes a believer in Christ is that at a certain point in time that God sovereignly determines, we don't determine it, when they hear the word of God about Jesus, the gospel, salvation being proclaimed, in some mysterious way that we don't fully understand, the Holy Spirit performs a work of grace in that individual's life by giving him, bestowing upon him, implanting in him spiritual life so that he now has a new nature a new heart, as the Old Testament refers to it. It is a divine nature. This is regeneration. This is what it means to be born again. This is what it means to become a new creation or creature in Christ. And now, now, because this sinner has been made spiritually alive by the sovereign power of God, he now, for the first time in his life, 
He now hates his sin and no longer wants to live like he's been living, which is in total rebellion to God. Now that person, since he's been regenerated and has a new nature, he now desires for the very first time in his life to have Christ as his Savior and Lord. He's never had that desire before. He now has it, and so he immediately, not a span of time, he immediately, upon being regenerated, repents of his sin, and he turns to Christ for salvation. He believes on the Lord. And something important to know is that God didn't do this against this individual's will. This person didn't enter God's kingdom kicking and screaming and fighting the Lord. He came of his own accord. He came willingly to Christ. He wanted to come to Christ because God changed his desires. God gave him a new heart so that he's not fighting the Lord anymore. Now he wants the Lord. I love the way R.C. Sproul explains this. He, he writes, the whole point of irresistible grace is that rebirth quickens someone to spiritual life in such a way that Jesus is now seen in his irresistible sweetness. Jesus is irresistible to those who have been made alive to the things of God. Every soul whose heart beats with the life of God within it longs for the living Christ. Folks, this is precisely what Jesus was talking about when he said in John 6, 37, I read this earlier to you, all whom the Father gives to me will come to me. They have to come because they want to come. And they want to come because God has changed their hearts by making them alive and now responsive to him. Now next month, when we observe the Lord's Supper, we're going to look at some biblical references that will help you to understand even more because they clearly teach irresistible grace. We'll also deal with some objections that people have come up with to this doctrine. But for the few minutes we have left before we move into the Lord's Supper, I want to give you some practical implications of the doctrine of irresistible grace. First of all, the doctrine of irresistible grace ought to be of great encouragement to all of us because it tells us that no one is beyond saving. Even the most sin-hearted individual cannot resist God's grace when that special call of salvation is given by the Holy Spirit. So take heart. Don't be discouraged by that obstinate individual you know who keeps rejecting Christ. If the Lord gives that special inward call of salvation to that person, it will not fail in bringing them to Christ. No one is beyond God's power and grace to save. It was Spurgeon who said these magnificent words. Listen to this. He said, difficulty is not a word to be found in the dictionary of heaven. I love that. Difficulty is not a word to be found in the dictionary of heaven. Nothing can be impossible with God. The swearing reprobate whose mouth is blackened with profanity, whose heart is a very hell, and his life like the reeking flames of the bottomless pit, such a man, if the Lord but looks on him and makes bare his arm of irresistible grace, shall yet praise God and bless his name and live to his honor. So be encouraged. That person you know, perhaps a family member, a relative, a friend, a neighbor, is just so stiff-necked and keeps refusing Christ, don't lose heart. Pray for God to send out that call. Secondly, doctrine of irresistible grace offers a great comfort to us because it teaches us that God not only is the one who initiates our salvation, but it also tells us that he saves us at the precise time that he has chosen 
to save us. Why is that encouraging and comforting? Because there are many Christians who think, oh, if, if I had only been saved earlier in life as a child, then I wouldn't have done this, I wouldn't have done that, I would have made much better choices in life. But God, God is the one who sovereignly dictated when he would call you to himself. You didn't determine that. You weren't saved a moment too soon or a moment too late. So don't live with regrets as if you missed out on a lot of happiness because you weren't saved earlier. Trust God that his plan for you is perfect. He saved you when he chose to save you. Third, the doctrine of irresistible grace ought to free us from the folly The folly of thinking that we can actually persuade anyone to come to Christ, if we just use the right words, if we just present it the right way. All we can do, all we do, is we share the gospel with someone. We can't change their hearts. We can't persuade them to see their need for Christ. We can't open their minds to the gospel. That's the work of the Spirit of God. We just are to be faithful in sharing the truth. Many years ago, when I first became a Christian, I shared the gospel with my brother, naively thinking that since the gospel made sense to me, then certainly it would make sense to him, because after all, we're from the same family, we have the same backgrounds. So I thought he would have the same response to the gospel that I had, but it didn't make sense to him. It didn't make sense to him as it made sense to me, and he was not interested in salvation. So I thought, well, there must be something wrong that I'm doing in the way I'm presenting Christ. Maybe I'm leaving something out. Maybe I'm not saying it the right way. So I decided to tell him again about Christ. And again, he didn't respond. And so I told him again and again and again until he finally was fed up and he said, Steve, I don't want to hear any more about this. And I understand. See, I thought that people came to Christ based on how well I explained the gospel. That's not true. People come to Christ when the Holy Spirit issues that special, inward, always effective call to salvation, the call that cannot be resisted. We're to be faithful, not badger people like I did, but we're to be faithful sharing the gospel. And understand this, the Holy Spirit never issues this call apart from the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word about Christ. So it is our responsibility to share the gospel. We're commanded to do that. But our confidence needs to be in the Lord to save those he will save and not in our methods or our verbal persuasiveness. Now next month we'll probe further into the doctrine of irresistible grace and we'll see some more practical applications of this truth. But in light of what you've heard today, the most important thing is for you to consider, have you been called? Has God called you to salvation with that special effective call, that internal calling that cannot be resisted? Second Peter 1.10 says that we are to make our calling and election sure. How can you know if you've been irresistibly called to salvation as one of God's elect? Well, it's really simple. If you've been irresistibly called by God to salvation, then you have responded. You have responded to the gospel by repenting, turning from your sin, trusting Christ's death for your salvation. You've done that. You've responded. And the proof that you've been called is that your life has been changed. There's fruit in your life. Your life has been transformed. It's in the process of being more and more transformed every day. But it does mean that now, as opposed to before, you have new desires. You want to obey God. 
You're challenged by that. All of us are. But you want to obey God in your heart of hearts. You have new goals, new ambitions, new standards of behavior. You talk differently. I mean, I remember one of the first things in my life that changed is I grew up on the streets of Brooklyn, New York. I was a vulgar, profane young man. Right after I came to faith in Christ, I recognized that that needed to get cleaned up. And I remember crying out to God, Lord, I've, I've talked like this all of my life. Will you change me? And God did. That's the proof. That's the proof of salvation. So if there are no changes ever in your life and you can continue to sin, it doesn't bother you, then you need to make sure you've come to faith in Christ because at this point you haven't. The only way to know if God has called you is to come. So if you've never come, do that. When we close the service, after we observe the Lord's Supper, some of our elders will be up here at the front. We invite you to come if you want to speak to any of them about faith in Christ. But for those of us who do know Jesus, the truth of irresistible grace, that's a truth that ought to, as I said, it ought to evoke deep praise and adoration for the Lord because without his effective calling, calling of us to salvation, we would still be dead, dead in our sins and trespasses and resisting his call. It's because he called you because he regenerated you, that you now understand the meaning of the cross. That in his death, Jesus Christ was judged in your place for your sins. The Father laid upon his son your sin, my sin, so that we will never be judged by God for our sins. They were already judged. So let's stand for closing prayer. Our Father, we thank you for irresistible grace, Lord. Thank you for calling us. For those of us who know you, Lord, we stand in awe of you. We are amazed at your mercy and grace, amazed that this whole, all of it fits together, that salvation from beginning to end is of you. With our part, we ran, but you ran after us, and thank you for that, Lord. May we leave here with having our minds stretched, but in a good way where we perhaps now have been stimulated to think about some things we've never thought of before. Help us to be faithful to you in witnessing the gospel, but understanding that our confidence is in you to bring someone to salvation, not us. And Lord, we do indeed pray, help us to love one another with the same heart that you have for all of your people to put away sin in our hearts, our minds, our attitudes, and to renew in us a clean spirit of love for others. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.